Hello, we are making history here, folks. This is the first episode of Sarnia Famous. Today's guest is Mr. Jay Peckham, who graciously agreed to be my very first interviewee. Seated in the comfort of his own home in front of a bookshelf teeming with various books and scripts, Jay tells us tales of his theater experience, shows he dreams of producing, how the theater stimulates the local economy, and as an extra special treat, especially for those budding actors and actresses, he teaches us the tried and true Jay Peckham method for learning lines. Thanks for tuning in. Oh, I should mention if the episode seems to start out of place, that's because it does. Because I was so nervous, I was almost pooping my pantaloons, I forgot to introduce Jay until halfway through the episode, so I decided to splice that part in at the start. What can I say? It's a learning process. Okay, on with the show. So I know you just briefly from um, working together at Miracle on 34th Street. Correct. And what made me realize that I forgot to introduce you was when you were talking about how being in a show together, it, you instantly become family with these people. I think you mentioned $4,000 shoes or something like that yeah. and how they fit. I don't know where you shop, but um, my <laughs> shoes are slightly cheaper, but I definitely felt that feeling of, of yes. you know, instant. It was like, oh, I found my people. Everybody's walking around backstage using accents and weird 100%. stuff. And, it's such I a strong connection, you know, yes, it really is. What I remember you most for was Drunk Santa, which was... <laughs> You you made me blush backstage because no matter where you were, you were still in character. And I was standing backstage terrified, absolutely terrified and running through my lines in my head. And you would kind of stumble over with your drunk Santa <laughs> routine. And it it was perfect because it helped my nerves. But yeah, so welcome, Jay Peckham. Yes. Sarnia Famous. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate that. This is awesome. So tell me about your, your history with acting. My parents, my mom and my stepfather were heavily involved in, in theater back uh, many, many, many years ago yeah, when we lived in Aurelia. My first show ever was uh, Fiddler on the Roof. It was uh, with the Mariposa Arts Theater. I think I was 10 or 11. And we, we played out of the uh, Opera House in Aurelia, which an old church it was just brilliant and you know I, I kind of fell in love because you know there's something about theater that makes people family when you get involved in a show or engage in that live performance kind of thing it's almost an instantaneous trust sort of thing that you can't help but call people family like I mean this anyway so I just literally fell in love with it and so I did a bunch more shows with them and then when I got into high school again, you know, like I still had that passion for theater. It was my favorite course I took in high school. Um, I still remember my my English teacher from high school, uh, Bert Kowalczyk, and uh, he was also our theater teacher, and he was amazing. He really fueled my love of things like improv and developing and writing. And, you know, improv has really stayed with me in terms of being able to 
change the narrative off the cuff and yeah. stuff like that. And that's really kind of my first love. And then I took some time off while I was working, but I got married and stuff and I was in Godrich. They have an amazing theater in Godrich, the livery, but I got involved with them. And I, I think I did six or seven shows with, uh, with them. I got on their board of directors. Those were the people that really helped out behind the scenes in terms of making shows happen. And so I got a lot of experience there with that. And then we moved to Sarnia. And I have to tell you, uh, I've told this story many, many times. My first show with theaters or my first audition with Theater Sarnia did not go well. Oh. Oh, my. It was a train wreck. Okay. And I was angry. I mean, I walked out of there. I was mad. Oh, man. Was I mad. I mean, how dare they not give me a part? I was brilliant. (laughs) And... I was so, they gave it to somebody who wasn't even half as good as me. Oh my God. It was, it was terrible. So I swore I am never doing this again. And (laughs) done. But you know what? The, the truth is there was always that draw, you know, to kind of go back to it. And um, eventually working for the uh, Catholic school board. And I got a call from one of our secretaries who was involved with, Theater Sarnia, and she said, you got to come out for this. We really think you'd do well with this show. You're just one of those characters that would just fit this role. And so I thought, all right, you know what? I'll just swallow it and I'll go in. And I auditioned for a play called Office Hours. Uh, This was back in maybe 2002, 2003. And as it turned out, that particular show uh, was directed by George Wood, who I have uh, an undying love for that man. God rest his soul. He, I mean, he's passed on now, but he was outstanding. But that show, the people that were involved in that show, I mean, this was the core group of Theater Sarnia. And again, it, you know, that same sort of instant family just kind of fit. You know, it was uh, George Wood and the Poor family and Megan and a lot of these people went on to be directors and do other things within the theater and it was just it's it's one of those things it's a fit you know and when something's a fit you just kind of know it it's like putting on that four thousand dollar pair of running shoes that you just know i'm never taking these damn things off you know it's just that it's that kind of thing right you know i i went out for another show i got asked in brighton beach memoirs and again wonderful show neil simon play i, I went through for a string of auditions and you know I, I didn't do as well as i thought i would and crazy amount of stories back from that time when i was not getting my fair share again i did my best to be a little more mature than i was the first time that happened but i i think i failed a little until I got another call from my friend Maureen Crichton. I love Maureen Crichton to death. And she said to me, she goes, Jay, she says, I have a word of advice, some words of wisdom. Suck it up, princess. It's the theater. <laughs> and it's true. You know, you got to, yeah. one thing that theater will teach you is, is how to manage hearing the word no. Yeah. It was absolutely right. I went out and I got part of my life. Uh, in another Neil Simon play called Jake's Women. Uh, We went all the way to Theatre Ontario uh, with that festival entry, and we won at WODL. And at that point in time, I was heavily invested. Eventually, I turned and and thought, I see how these plays are being directed, and I thought, I'm going to give that a crack as well. I pitched a, a play called Don't Dress for Dinner, which is farce, 
frankly, farce is my jam. Uh, all of the funniest moments I've ever had on stage uh, came from farcical productions like Not Not, Not Darling, where I uh, was in that show with Dan White. And uh, we just, we were having way more fun than the audience. And, they, and the <laughs> audience loved it. And they went, and there were some great moments from that. But anyway, so I pitched Don't Dress for Dinner as my directorial debut. And then I got kind of railroaded into doing another show called Vampire Art, which was a local musical about Dracula. Brilliant a show. A musical about Dracula. Yes, called <laughs> Vampire Art. It was brilliant. Uh, my friend Alan Hill, he wrote it uh, with Glenn Kennedy. It was tremendous. It needed some work. It was about four hours long. I ended up directing it. I was only supposed to be an actor. And I worked with Alan and we cut it down. And I worked with Dan White and we got it produced and put on the stage. And it was an amazing uh, journey. And then I directed Don't Trust for Dinner, which was absolutely amazing. And, you know, sort of around that time, I just I decided at that point, the board of directors was uh, calling my name. Uh, my friend Dan, uh, Dan White, was uh, part of the board at the time. He was the chair. He had something happen in his life and he kind of had to step away. And I ended up being the chair of the board. And I was there for almost five years as the chair. And I loved every minute of it. You know, when I took over, the theater was seeing some really tough times. And we hired our executive director, Brian Austin, at that time. Brian and I worked uh, very, very closely together. By the time I had to step down from the board for a year to take a year off, we were thriving, doing really well. And I mean, I give 100% of the credit to, to Brian. He was an excellent choice for our executive director. And uh, and now we're in a good place, you know. Um, uh, even with COVID hitting, um, Brian and the board and uh, the staff and the, and the whole team has, you know, kill, still managed to keep the theater going and in the right uh, on the right track. And and it looks like we're uh, we may have we may have some shows coming up. Yeah, now that's the only inside scoop I can give you. You know, I, I, I got to be careful, right? Because I am still back on the board now. I can't tell you over COVID how bad my mental health is suffered without having the the yes. theater there to do yes. that or you know it really is very much my family outside of my own family our community theater group is enormous we have a core membership of active people but then you know there's a b layer and a c layer and it just extends the truth is that's made it so that we're one of the very few theater companies community theater not-for-profit community theater companies um, in Canada that owns its own theater and we own it outright. Like, I mean, we took 20 years to pay for it. That building is ours. That generates for us a, a really incredible opportunity to just extend our reach in terms of not just our community, but I mean, we reach into London and Port Huron and Chatham and we have people coming from all over the place uh, from other theater companies that come to do stuff with us and then they take that back and we've been actively involved in the western ontario drama league which is sort of our theater region so you know we've had those connections with 30 or 40 other theater companies in southwestern ontario we've hosted a few festivals and things like that so 
the theater company is really the center of the downtown core. We take that. At one point, actually, Mayor Mike came to us with a statistic that literally for every dollar we process through our box office, that translates into about $15 for every $1 that gets spent in our downtown community, right? So if you consider, you know, hotels and restaurants, bars and shopping, and they rely on all the traffic before and after a show's on, you know, when we're putting on, you know, 180 days a year, that's a huge amount of money. You know, we're doing a million dollars through our box office or more right now. Uh, well, I mean, pre-COVID, right? We hope to get back to that level again, but that's $15 million a year going into our downtown core because of the theater. You know, we have our community to thank for that. Not just our members, but the, the greater, you know, sort of Sarnia community. It's amazing. I have no idea about that. I'm glad that you explained that to me. Yeah, 100%. A little, little more pride. And yeah. I was amazed when I found out that it was community. Like um, when I first moved out here, my husband was really big into the theater with me as well. So we went to a bunch of shows and I was blown away when it was community because it never seemed like that to yep. me at all. What about, I know you have a big family now. Um, are any of your Anybody else in your family involved None. in the theater? None whatsoever. Really? Yeah, it's weird. I don't get it. No, <laughs> now, hang on. No, well, I, you know what? I don't know. It's not for lack of trying. Oh, you know, okay. I mean, I have had my boys because, um, you know, when we talk about my family, I grow them big. So my youngest son is six foot six. My other son's six four and my daughter is six foot tall. And at one point in time or another, they've all done something for me uh, in one of the shows I've been involved in. Okay, so uh, whether that's set construction or building or, you know, lighting, sound, things like that. I mean, they've all been involved at one time or another, including a lot of my peer group. You know, like I've, I've dragged a lot of people to the theater that they didn't think that they were going to like it and you know, I dragged him kicking and screaming, and now they just love it. Ask Kip, Mc, Kip McMillan someday. Just okay. ask him. I dragged him kicking and screaming. Nick Menard, another one of those guys. They love it. They're going to lie to you and say they didn't, but they do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my wife has produced a show that I was in. Um, my mother-in-law has produced shows for me. You know, it's funny how you build the other part of being having family involved. Every you know, person, as you kind of get up there, builds, you know, sort of that team that they just love to work with. They'll work with anybody, but they, there's a team of people that they just kind of love to work with, right? You know, for me, it's people like Andrea Matthews. I just love her to death. She's my stage manager. Uh, we're two, two sides of the same coin uh, because wherever our, I kind of fall down, she picks up and we've done a lot of shows together. So, you know, she's always kind of my go-to. A greater group beyond that, you know, Jane Mulligan is typically tends to be my, my wardrobe uh, mistress, and she's brilliant at what she does, and, and I love her to death. I have an extended theater family, so it's, it's terrific. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about Christmas Carol. Okay. That is one of my favorites. I've gotten to see it a number of times in my life. It's always been very serious, and your, your iteration of it was very different from that in a variety of ways. In particular, uh, Ruth's giant paper mache head when she walked out. I, I didn't know whether to, to laugh or cry or I, it was so Perfect. funny and well done. 
well done. And it just brought a new angle to it. And I remember talking to you after the show, you said something very intelligent to me about your vision for the show. And I blanked because all I could think about was how funny it was that Ruth had this giant paper mache head. So I wanted to give you this opportunity where I am all ears to please tell me your artistic vision. Well, okay. So Christmas Carol came about um, under kind of unusual circumstances, honestly. Literally what happened was somebody else had was set to direct Christmas Carol. And that person was Jeannie Simon. She fell ill uh, and it turned out that she was not going to be well enough in time to give it everything she could. So they went looking for another director and they, they came to me. I don't know how many other people they went to before me. Maybe I was the first one. Maybe I was number eight. They're the only sucker to say yes. But either way, they came to me and I thought, okay, you know what? I love this show and I've got some ideas. So the more I looked at it, typically when you're building a show from a director um, with your creative management team, I tend to typically tend to start about a year and a half out and I'll tend to read the script a dozen times and I start making notes. You know, a vision really did start to appear to me. I mean, I'm a comedy guy. So for me, getting away from comedy is difficult. I can't take comedy out of what I do. It's very difficult. But I knew that we had only done Christmas Carol a few years previously. And it was the straight up sort of Victorian style and kind of a box set and lots of moving parts and stuff. And I knew that I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do the same old, same old. I decided to do a little bit of research. And I honestly, at that time, I came across a book and actually I have it right here. Um, uh, Mr. Dickens and his Carol by Samantha Silva. Honestly, this tells the story. It is fictitious, but it tells the story about Charles Dickens and how he came to write A Christmas Carol and the parallels in his own life to the things that happened in the play itself are absolutely incredible. It's a really a well worth the read if you like Charles Dickens or if you like Christmas Carol. It's absolutely worth the read. But from that, I took a lot of imagery from that. And, you know, Dickens, he was a funny old guy, you know, at least in the book he was. You know, there was as much drama and darkness as there were sort of some light moments and things like that. Honestly, according to the book, Christmas Carol was, it was a contractual obligation for him. And he never really wanted to write it. So he, he, he came up with this sort of really crazy idea, figuring people were just going to go, you know, and they didn't, you know, they yeah. loved it. And so then it was a matter for me at that point of sort of breaking down the ghosts and those moments with the ghosts, because I think overall they tell the story and in three parts. And it really is. It's about past, present and future. It's about comedy and tragedy and the maybe the mundanity of life, especially in Victorian England. You know, I wanted there to be those kind of scary moments. I wanted there to be some some joviality in there. And so we really looked at how can we sort of assign these principles to the three ghosts and what fits? Because I, you know, we did, you know, one as a man. So I knew I wanted another one as a woman. 
And I knew I wanted one to be spectral or nondescript or androgynous or whatever it is, you know, sort of everything at once and nothing at the same time. And the more we got sort of thinking down those lines, the more this vision or, you know, a very minimalist approach that took the audience. Like, I mean, I think what I tried to accomplish was grabbing the audience's attention in the beginning and then sort of forcing them to watch what we were doing and taking them and following every moment as if you had that single pan camera that just never stopped. And so, and we told the story in that with those mechanisms involved. Now, granted, I will tell you, I had more fights with our special effects people because there were some things where we wanted to do a lot more. And there were other things that turned out just as they should have. And there were some other things that were probably more than I could have ever imagined. When I pictured uh, Harold, we call him Harold, the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And when I, when I first envisioned Harold, it was nowhere close to his scary as that monster was the first night i sat in the audience and harold lurched forward out of the dark with his red eyes glowing and in all of his glory and everything all the rags just kind of floating and those spectral arms going at the audience and the entire audience went i just i knew I had done my job at that moment. Do you know what I mean? And that was so rewarding, just that, if nothing else, that moment. But the same reaction that we got for the ghost of Christmas present with uh, the Ruthie uh, doll, Uh, that wasn't actually Ruthie in it because that would have caused some problems. It was, there was another guy in it, but um, Ruth Francoeur, I love you, Ruthie, if you're listening or watching or whatever you're doing. (laughs) Because that that thing was it was incredible, and I I have to thank Catherine Soulier for for such a remarkable job designing that uh, head uh, and it then the wardrobe. It, it, it wasn't easy, and it couldn't have been better. Like it just it really captured the essence of Ruth, and I you know we wanted it to be playful, and because Christmas for me we're a very traditional Christmas family in my family, and we have all those moments including, you know, that relative that you just never want to stop by because they're just a miserable old curmudgeon. And, (laughs) you know, right down to, you know, games and presents and it's Christmas is joyous. And that was what Christmas present was really intended to be. When I think joy, I think Ruth Frankler. I don't care if absolutely. anybody else does, but I absolutely do. She's just a ball of sunshine. Yeah, it was, you know. And so that yeah. was just, it was it was just so much fun uh, to do that uh, with her. That's awesome. It was fun to watch. Yeah, it was, you know, and I know it was different. And I got a lot of mixed reviews um, after the fact. Some people loved it. Some people didn't like that we kind of departed from the tradition of stuff, but you know, Marley coming through the uh, fireplace was uh, was another uh, amazing special effect that uh, you know. Thank you, Brian Austin for and and Ian Alexander for all of those and Catherine for the incredible lighting job. But you know, there would have been some some other grander things. Sometimes you have to realize it's not within the realm of possibility. Sometimes. But you know what? Dream big, yeah. you know, because you if do. you can get plan A, awesome. If you have to scale back to plan B, well, you know what? That's okay too. Because in the end, if you strive for the best, you're going to get something good out of it. Anyway, does that answer your question? I guess. 
Yes, it does perfectly. Thank you very, very much in even more detail. Okay, so now we're gonna have a little bit of fun. I'm gonna ask you three questions. And okay. for each question, I want you to give me three responses. Two of them are going to be lies. Okay. And one is going to be the truth. Perfect. Yes. And uh, I'll give you like a little. And you're bit gonna of guess. Time. And you're gonna guess. And I'm gonna the guess truth? which one. Okay. Yes. 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 Perfect. I may be putting myself in a terrible position, but I'm I'm okay with sure. it. Sure. Have you ever been involved in or witness a wardrobe malfunction while in a play? So I need to come up with three answers, two of which are lies, and one of which is the truth. Yes. Answer number one is no. I, you know what? I have some amazing wardrobe people that work with me. And truthfully, nothing that's ever made it to the stage has ever occurred for me because my people are just that good. Uh, answer number two, yes, but it was backstage. And uh, we were fortunate enough. There was only one other person involved. I'm not going to mention any names, but <laughs> we managed to keep that contained and under wraps. Answer number three is yes, because I've been on stage in a few plays where I was in nothing more than a towel. Yes, there was one episode on an, on an evening performance. I think it was a Tuesday where the Velcro that was holding my towel closed uh, was not necessarily securely fastened. <laughs> How's that? All right, you pick. Okay, I want number one to be correct. No, number, th number three is correct. Oh my gosh! Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah, I can't even I did. imagine. I had a very small pair of shorts on underneath, so, but I mean, <laughs> you have to understand the terror of being on stage I can't. in very little. I mean, I'm not a small guy, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm no Tom Selleck, I'm no Matthew McConaughey. You know, I get it. People do not need to see my giant body on stage any more than they have to. So, yes, I did have a towel slip. It was a play called Real Estate. I was in it with uh, Jennifer Arthurs. And uh, it was a mediocre play at best. Uh, but that night was uh, a bit humorous. A little more humorous than I would have liked. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, I cannot, cannot imagine uh, that was one big culture shock for me when I came into the theater and everybody started doing wardrobe changes behind the stage. Just everybody started stripping down. And I remember being very modest at first. And then by the time I got to my second play, I, I was right there with everybody else stripping in the back because you have no time to be modest. Yeah. And, and again, you know what? It's that trust factor, right? Like if That's you trust it. the people you're on stage with, that just doesn't matter. And I'm not a, mm -hmm. I'm not a modest guy. To start with, I mean, honestly, I'm probably more well known for kissing women on stage that are not my wife, <laughs> because I I want to say that in a number of play, it's probably more than five plays I have had to kiss other women, and it, when I did Jake's women, I had to kiss at least two of them. Yeah, so I I I've, I have many stage wives, and thank goodness my wife <laughs> is so very. Very understanding. Probably the, the 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 strangest one for us was when I did uh, Clean House. My character was a partner with uh, Jan Walker Holt, and while my wife didn't have much of an issue, I mean, we it it was hot. It had to be hot. <laughs> my wife, she you know she took it in stride without because it's not new for her. Jan's husband, Robin. I love you, Robin, if you're listening, but Robin, he didn't quite see it that way. It took him a while to get over that show. 
that that's impressive. Um, yeah. I hope that never happens to me because I think uh, I'm awkward smooching my husband. Never mind on stage. Like fair enough. But, yeah, there is um, a stage way to make it look real. Let me tell you. Good to know. These are the good. tricks of the trade that tricks I, of the I trade. need to consume. Yeah, absolutely. If I ever have to do it, I will. I will seek counsel. Perfect. Okay. Have you ever blanked on stage and had to? either ab-lib it or just blanked long enough that another actor took over for you? So answer number one is no, I'm just that good. <laughs> answer number two is no, yes, but it was a, the ad-lib was very brief and it was, it bridged the gap the way it, it should have and nobody would have noticed at all. Three is, yes, I've actually flat out standing there solo on stage and there was nothing, just nothing. Okay. So, so anyway, now you got to pick. Uh, like I know you want number one to be right, yeah. but <laughs> I think we both know the reality there. No, um, I would say two. You're a ab libby type dude and a comedy dude, and so the answer is uh, not two. Um, oh, I'm really three. good at this game. Yeah, yeah. Really? Uh, now I have to say with with the answer number two, I've never really ad-libbed because i am a perfectionist when it comes to lines oh. and so other people have ad-libbed I've, I've been off script like i've skipped things but somebody else's ad-lib took me back and we we fixed it but for the most part i'm pretty rigid with the lines thing i you know i go for um word for word from the the script now does that mean i've made a mistake or two on occasion maybe uh, but not, nothing that you'd notice. But yeah, actually in Jake's Women, Jake's Women was a hard play to do because the character Jake, everything happens in his mind. So if Jake's not on stage, nothing happens. So he's on stage from the opening of the play till the end of the play. And people come in, other characters come and go through the play. But if Jake's, there's one moment he goes off stage to go to the washroom and nobody can talk, nobody can move, nobody does anything. Till he comes back and then it picks up again there were 17 monologues in that play oh, 17 wow. monologues and yes i know the number is 17 still even though i probably did that in 2007 or 8 somewhere around there and i still remember some of the opening lines for that play um because it was so ingrained but uh, there was a one monologue where i was talking about my father and i got to a point where it got so close to a to a parallel to my own life that it took me a little out of my character and I literally blanked. Fortunately, an assistant stage manager whispered off stage the next cue and I was able to pick it up. But other if, if they hadn't done that, I would have been in there like an idiot for an hour. It was horrifying. I threw myself into improv after that to try yeah, to pick up my that. skills around that and embrace the fact I've been there. I never want to be that scared again. And so, uh, you know, improv is my life now. So. Yeah, yeah, might as well. And I, as well and I have that. to, yeah, and I also have to say that I've had to give up on the idea of being perfect, you know, or DLP as we call it, dead letter perfect, right? So, you know, now when I learn lines, uh, if you ever have struggle with learning lines, you let me know because I have the JPEG method and it works like a charm. There's a guy named Jeff Winter. He was in uh, Willow Quartet, which I directed. And Jeff Winter, he struggled huge with his lines. 
until he learned the JPEG method. After that, he was brilliant. He, he's such a good actor to start with. He's just a very real actor. Uh, in working with Jeff, he was probably between him and Craig as Scrooge in Christmas Carol. I, I want to say that working with those two guys on character and character development uh, solo was probably some of the most rewarding character work I've ever done. Uh, and they were such, so good at it. Can you give me like a little snippet on how? how yeah, sure. I, I mean, I start with an overview. Like I start, okay, so you read the script, number one, and you have to understand the gist of the whole play. What's the point? The biggest picture of possible right at the top level of it all. And then you break it down by act. Okay, what is act one trying to accomplish? What is act two trying to accomplish? And then you can break it down sort of scene by scene by scene. What are we trying to accomplish and what's my role in that, right? And then you break it down and stuff like that. And then it's repetition and add, repetition and add, repetition and add. And it's also making those connections because you have to find a way to make the lines mean something to you. Because quite often the people who struggle with the lines the most are the people who are just trying to say what's in the script as if they're just reading it. Now you have to assign some meaning to it, right? And it's making that connection to your life or to, to the bigger picture that will help you remember that that piece is in there. I feel like there's another podcast in there. It's like could Jay's be. lessons could on be. how to be an actor. <laughs> what is your dream role to play as an actor or your what would be your dream show to direct? Oh, wow. That's a really big question. And you need two lies in all of this, right? Yeah. Okay. Answer number one is a political drama. Answer two is a giant musical number with lots of kids. Answer number three is Judas Iscariot in Godspell. Okay, so the first two were just like generic responses. So I'm going to think that maybe three is the one. Wow. Okay, so you got an answer right. Yeah, absolutely. Yay! Now, Yay yes. Yay Yes. And I wish I could give because I just... I mean, I've got all these scripts up here, but coming up with a lie is really hard for that one because there's so much I'd still like to do. Um, I have a number of plays. I want to do Shakespeare in Love. So, so hard. I saw the play in Stratford. They made a mess of it. I can do better. Really? In Stratford? I said that. I said that right now. I'm leaving it out there. Wow. They messed it up. Um, I'd love to what do Jesus Christ Superstar again because that is my all-time, one of my favorite shows. I'd love to do Rocky Horror. Um, oh, yeah. I love that too. I'd love to do, uh, the first play I ever pre uh, directed uh, was a play called Don't Dress for Dinner. It's a companion piece to a classic farce called Boeing Boeing. I'd love to do Boeing Boeing. It's hilarious about a guy who's dating three women whose names all start with the letter J and they're all stewardesses. Oh boy. And he's got their schedules worked out. So there's always one at home, one in the air and one at a far destination. And then Boeing comes out with the Concorde, the fastest plane ever. And all of a sudden, all three women end up at his house. Let me tell you, sex farce at its best. So I'd love <laughs> to do that one. There's a classic Noel Coward show called Blythe Spirit. I would think that would go over really well in Sarnia. It's kind of a classic play, lots of fun with ghosts and uh, yes, and infidelity and, and angry spirits and ex-wives. Anyway, it's fun, 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 fun. 
Um, <laughs> but classic Noel Coward, so very kind of dry wit sort of thing. But And then I'd like to do some kind of edgier stuff. I'd love to see us do some more fringy kind of things, you know, some things that kind of push the envelope a little bit. Because when I do a show, I put a huge amount of thought into it. You know, uh, beforehand, like I said, takes me a year and a half really to get to the point where before we can even get into um, rehearsals and stuff and the audition process and that kind of thing. It takes about a year and a half to do a show um, because I like to get in depth with that kind of thing. Right. I like to have lots of stuff worked out before, you know, I try to deliver. At least I have to have a very clear vision of what I want the play to do. But I also I know that there's a lot of very poignant current topics or historical topics that have parallels and juxtapositions to where we are now as uh, Canadians, you know, and, and sort of that Western culture thing that I think there's a there's a lot of great voices out there that need their productions seen and heard uh, and that kind of thing. Lots of great Canadian playwrights, you know, and it's not just the light stuff. I did a show called Shorthanded once about eight hockey players playing sort of senior pickup hockey for old timers. Anyway, um, but uh, I did a play called Shorthanded about these, these eight guys. It was one of the most fun shows I've ever done. Canadian playwright, guy named Michael Grant. And uh, I got to meet Michael Grant. I didn't know it. I was on this the schedule to direct this play. And we were in festival in Owen Sound for another play. And as we were in Owen Sound, I was there for the whole festival watching all the plays. It turns out Michael Grant was the playwright in session at that point. So I was sitting in the audience listening to him talk about a play of his that I was about to direct for Theatre Sarnia. Hadn't started oh, wild. yet. It was, it was great meeting him. And on top of that, my favorite Sarnia Sting were slated to play in Owen Sound that night against the Owen Sound attack. It was just a weird collection of circumstances that mashed in together. So anyway, but short, shorthanded was so much fun. But yeah, I mean, again, lots of great Canadian playwrights, Willow Quartet, which I directed, which is probably my favorite directorial piece uh, that I've ever done was uh, was Willow Quartet. Um, great cast and crew, um, Richard and Carissa Teske, Jeff Winter and Liz Walton, uh, dream cast. But it, it was a Canadian playwright, uh, Joan Burroughs. I met her uh, at festival. She was at festival when we were selected to go to WODL festival. She loved everything we did with her work. The Adjudicator did not like it that quite that much. So we didn't get to move on, um, but we won a few awards and, and whatever, but the feedback from the playwright was outstanding. So uh, one of my greatest triumphs at this point, but just to bring it back, there are lots of great stories and writers, you know, with COVID and stuff like that, people have taken to writing uh, right now. And there are so many great Canadian voices that, that really need to have their shows done. Um, and a lot of it is news related, you know, uh, current environment. And, uh, I think it's, uh, you know, those issues need to be presented somewhere. And I think I'd love to see theater Sarnia do some more of that kind of thing, you know, especially some of the edgy stuff that makes you think, you know, makes you cry makes you go out and donate money to your favorite charity makes you you know want to plant a tree or you know hug a tree or whatever or just hug somebody else i don't care you know whatever it is you know uh just very positive kind of things well i look anyway. forward to oh this brings me to we're gonna wrap things up but i wanted to give you a little opportunity 
if there was anything that you wanted to promote or plug or bring awareness to? Well, uh, that's a pretty broad open question. And I, <laughs> I you know, I'm going to go back to what I know because, you know, I'm, I'm heavily involved with Theatre Sarnia. I love the place. I think there's, um, there was a, a time where people thought that Theatre Sarnia was this close knit group, sort of old boys club. I want to say now that is just not the case. And so as we open up and as theater comes back to the Imperial Theater, I just want to encourage people, if you've ever wanted to try something new, try something different, get out of your comfort zone, you know, know what it's like to be part of an extended family, to feel connected to issues and creativity and just come out for auditions. Kick yourself in the butt, make yourself go out and do it. Because you're going to find something that unfortunately far too few people get to experience. And it is absolutely incredible. Because once you're connected, you just getting out is harder than getting in. Let me tell you, <laughs> it absolutely is. It's like the mafia. It is. But you've got to want it. You know, it's one of my life lessons to my kids. I don't care where you end up. I don't care what you do in your life. But you've got to start somewhere. Just try something now whatever it is do something now and if if you've ever thought about theater get out there and do it because we're always looking for great people you might not get a role the first time out you might not even get it second third or fourth time out you may go years getting shut out thinking you're the bomb and they don't know what they're talking about I've been there. But let me tell you, when you finally get that yes, it will be one of the most amazing experiences you'll ever have. So please come out to the theater. Come out, be be part of it. Participate, help out, volunteer, whatever it takes. And if you don't get a role, what was that sage wisdom that you received? Suck it up, princess. It's the theater. That's the perfect way to end this. <laughs> I can't think of a better way. I am so incredibly grateful to you that you put this time aside for me and in relatively short notice as well as soon as I figured out that you were willing I was like we better lock this down because I need <laughs> to get this on on tape so thank you for being my guinea pig for my very first um absolutely recording and once I get this all sorted out and uploaded and everything you will be the first to know so yeah thank you from the bottom of my heart absolutely well thank you for having me I mean ask anybody I could talk about myself for hours and hours. This was this was awesome. And you know what? Honestly, it was really great to reconnect with you, Dallas. I mean, I, I remember our time, and I remember how brilliant for your performance was in oh, Miracle on 34th Street. That so it's a lot to me. Um, you know, I, I, I really mean that. And uh, so thanks for having me. Okay, thank you. Have a nice evening.